Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode 12. On today's programme, I talk to Dr Ben Conable. Ben is a non-resident fellow with the Atlantic Council's Middle East Programme, the Director of Research at the DT Institute and an Adjunct Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University. I talked to him about a recent series of RAND reports that he produced that explored the will to fight. Ben spoke to me from his home USA. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Before we start, I should just add a quick disclaimer that this conversation between Ben and myself does not represent the views of any US or UK governmental agency. With that disclaimer out of the way, Ben, could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the will to fight, motivation and, quotes human factors in war? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So uh, my my experience as a US Marine infantrymen in the Gulf War is really what first got me interested, you know, fighting the Iraqis in 1991 and watching some of them <clears throat> run uh, and and surrender and then watching some of them fight very aggressively, including um, a guy who stood up in front of a tank with a rifle. Uh, it didn't end well for him. But, you know, the the mentality, uh, the, the thought process, the motivation, the decision making that went into the the shift or the the division between those who fled and those who stayed to fight um was probably the first time i thought about it and then as as i progressed through my career um i became more interested in understanding uh, culture and i was actually trained and educated as a foreign area officer and worked in the middle east and in my various tours in iraq i tried to i spent a lot of time trying to um, understand the motivations and behavioral inclinations, dispositions of the people that we were working with. Uh, and I did a pretty terrible job at it. Um, and, you know, I learned on the fly and I recognized the weaknesses in my own understanding and really was able to observe, perhaps more importantly, the difficulties that my fellow officers were having uh, and, and, and senior enlisted leaders were having uh, in trying to understand human behavior um, throughout that campaign. And then as I, I joined the RAND Corporation when I retired in 2009 and studied conflict, continued to study warfare and conflict um, all around the world, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, uh, and uh, studying the Russian military, uh, et cetera. And it became apparent that we had, even though we have this enormous, you know, uh, repository of knowledge on warfare and human behavior, that it really was rather shallow and path dependent and and perhaps not terribly helpful in terms of understanding uh, what people might or might not do in in conflict and then specifically um I, I got very interested in trying to understand the russians and the iraqi so before we start could you tell us exactly what rand is and what sort of work it does rand is a uh, it's not a think tank, um, and I think that's the first thing that people uh, uh, assume or when they hear RAND. Uh, it is, in fact, a research center, and it has within it uh, uh, several federally uh, funded research development centers, which are 
effectively kind of one foot in, one foot out of government. Um, they're officially sanctioned uh, centers that allow the researchers tremendous access to government classified information, um, sensitive uh, reporting and information. And we uh, are paid by government sponsors to, or I should say I was, I'm no longer with RAND, but we're paid by government sponsors uh, to uh, basically solve problems for them. Ones that are, the government is having trouble with or doesn't have the resources or time to deal with. RAND is particularly effective at addressing long-term, things that require long-term thinking, um, very in-depth, interview-driven research, and in, in a lot of cases, very highly detailed quantitative research, um, and then produces reports. And then there's a mandate within RAND to try to make as much of that information public as, as possible. And we're going to talk about a series of reports you did uh, for RAND on the will to fight. Now, could you just briefly tell us about the nature, scope, and the subject of these uh, publications that you worked on? Yes, I mean, it, it was... Uh, it was an initially going to be an effort um, to uh, address Russian and Afghan will the fight. So it initially started as a, a country-specific study um, and uh, a project that we had proposed to the U.S. Army. And you know, these are organizations that uh, filled with senior leaders and very intelligent people who have tremendous experience. And are very confident that they understand things like leadership and and in, you know words that they would use morale cohesion, um, and even human will. Um, and so there's actually not a, a, a terrific impetus to study these things uh, in in explicit detail in the military. So when we went to the, the army officer that we initially uh, approached. We said, hey, let's look at the Russian will to fight. I think there's a lot of assumptions about whether the Russians will or will not fight. And then let's look at the uh, will to fight of our Afghan partners. So this was circa 2015. So you can see where that went. Um, and he said, well, you know, I think the Russians never break, which was an interesting statement. Um, but this is, again, a very thoughtful, very intelligent guy and, and very open minded um, in an organization, you know, with a reputation for perhaps a little bit of closed mindedness. And instead he said, look, we don't understand will to fight generally, just give me a general study. And so that's what we set out to do. We set out to uh, approach will to fight in a very kind of general knowledge uh, way. And, and really starting with what we discovered was a major gap, which is just a definition of will to fight, um, which we can get to later if you'd like. But um, you know, what is will to fight? Why does it matter? Um, and what what do, have people said about it in the past? What are the historical lessons that have been learned about human will and its role in warfare? Um, and then how can we model it? How can we solve this problem that we have in that we, we all seem to be very confident about our understanding of human behavior, but we don't really do a very good job of forecasting it, right? We're, we're often quite wrong uh, and, and about what people are going to do in war. And when we're wrong, it can have horrible strategic consequences. So let's build a model. And we use the word model purposefully because it's rammed. But I'll tell you that it's a model in only the very loosest sense of the term. It's not an input-output model. You can't, it's not a gonculator. You can't put a, a, a bunch of numbers in and churn a bunch of numbers out. It is instead a, a, a I'll call it a heuristic or a, a guide to analysis. Um, and it is centered to a great extent on culture. We can talk about the model in a little bit as well. 
And then we wanted to also uh, see how we could integrate that into uh, computer simulation because it's a, a good way perhaps of translating uh, the, these kind of very complex concepts to uh, a broad range, a broad audience to include junior enlisted soldiers. You know, how do you how do you translate something this complex to somebody up and down the chain of command um, and to civilians as well? And so the initial reports tried to do that for both the uh, the military forces and the national decision making bodies. And then we did a bunch of other studies, some of which are still restricted um, on NATO, on the Syrian uh, military, uh, on the Russians. Um, and uh, we never did get around to that Afghanistan study, um, you know, and there were a lot of questions asked about uh, why the Afghans broke and how come we didn't see it coming. So we were kind of sitting back quietly thinking about that as well. Um, and then I did a, an in-depth study of the Iraqi army will fight. And I did a whole history of their, uh, it's not a terribly long history of the Iraqi army. It's only about a hundred years, but I did a, a history of their will to fight and looked at um, their behavioral dispositions, did interviews um, and, uh, and applied our model. And so I wanted to demonstrate to people how you could take that model and apply it in a in a real world case. I think I think you've dealt with why Rand's looking at this issue. So I'll move on to five. Number question number five. One thing that sort of struck me from your uh, study was the fact that the sort of the idea of the will to fight has been a really fashionable subject sometimes, and then completely forgotten other times. And it seems that we're going through a period where it's not particularly fashionable and it's not in, in vogue with, with military thinkers and commentators. Why is that? And why, why are they suddenly, I suppose, starting to have an interest now? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, here we have Karl von Clausewitz, uh, the, you know, the progenitor of, of Western military thought. Um, you know, this is, uh, if, you, if you look at any U.S. capstone doctrinal publication, uh, most Western publications in general, I would say the U.K. probably to a significant extent relies on Clausewitzian theories of warfare with the idea of, uh, you know, chaos and maneuver and all the things that, you know, what debatable, how do you interpret Clausewitz? But all the things that he touches upon are still foundational to our understanding. And in his later works, um, he settles on this idea that war is a contest of opposing wills. And we take this kind of at face value and then set it aside. And um, it, it doesn't seem to gain anybody's interest until we get it wrong. And so if you look throughout history at the times we've gotten it wrong, after we get it wrong, there tends to be a spike in interest. And then the interest wanes and we never really do anything concrete about it. There's, there's actually no definition, formal definition of will to fight in the U.S. government. Uh, in the U.S. military, which is remarkable, given that we say that will is the single most important factor in warfare. Um, and if you know anything about militaries, uh, if you don't define something, it, it is effectively meaningless. So, um, and I would, I, I, I would argue that there are two reasons that we have seen this kind of lack of interest. One is that human behavior is unsettled science. And it probably will indefinitely remain unsettled science. There is no clear, certainly not a quantitative answer to understand how and why people do things. What motivates people? How do their cognitive functions, um, you know, interact and, and with the outside world? How does culture influence behavior? All of these things are squishy and indiscernible to some extent. Um, a, a former U.S. intelligence uh, director, national intelligence director, actually called these things imponderable. 
Um, and I'm not sure he meant that because that means you literally can't even think about it. But, um, you know, that that statement really is reflective of this inherent kind of learned, transmitted belief amongst senior leaders. And I would say going down to some junior leaders as well, that this just can't be done. You can't understand human will. We understand it's important and set it aside. The second factor is, uh, is this and to some extent deserved um, belief amongst senior leaders I touched on earlier that uh, there's really a lot to be understood by looking at leadership and training uh, and cohesion and things that we can put our finger on and things that military forces around the world have tried to tackle and have integrated into their training and education programs for, for you know, over millennia, right? So it it's difficult for, let's say, a three-star, four-star general to say, I don't understand human will. I don't understand will to fight in warfare because they, they're inclined to say, well, it's all about leadership or it's all about training or it's all about cohesion. And I will just add a codicil to this. The academic community has not been terribly helpful over the last century or so in helping us to figure this out, um, particularly the last half century. And, and we have focused on what I would call unitary theories of human behavior and not taken a holistic approach, which is what we've tried to do. And circle back to that if you'd like. But this idea that it's so complicated that if you just boil it down to one factor, you can explain everything about human behavior and particularly in, in warfare. So let's just say it's all about training. It's all about leadership. And then you will see almost a tautological approach to studying human behavior saying, well, let's go into this and look at cohesion. And then it becomes self-evident that cohesion is, of course, the most important factor in understanding behavior. And that means implicitly that all other factors are less or not important, or they're only important when viewed through the lens of cohesion. And that narrow approach to thinking about human behavior is so reductionist that it can be compelling uh, and it can capture and captivate senior leaders and just say, well, I, I, this is so complex. I want to boil down. Give it to me in very simple terms. These guys over here are telling me it's really complicated and I need to think about it a long time. This guy over here is telling me he's got a clear, easy answer. That's what I'm going to go with. And so what we have wound up with is a lot of studies of cohesion, uh, a lot of studies of the impact of training um, on behavior and leadership. And those things are not necessarily deterministic uh, of human behavior in any one conflict or across all conflicts. So let's move on to your report. So how do you define the will to fight and why not use more traditional, maybe more comfortable terms like morale or cohesion for, for that term? Yeah, we, so it took us a year to, and maybe that wasn't long enough, but it took us a year to come up with our definition of military will to fight. Um, it was a, a, a really interesting and vivid uh, uh, and intellectually stimulating debate inside the RAND team. We have, you know, we have psychologists and historians and um, computational uh, sociologists and all sorts of really fascinating people uh, all debating, uh, you know, this the, the what the definition should be. And we we chose each word with very specific meaning. Um, so we define military will to fight as the disposition and decision to act, fight, act, or persevere when needed. And so disposition is specifically selected 
to help intelligence professionals think about forecasting human behavior. What are people likely to do in a given circumstance? And we're not saying there's specificity, you're not predicting, but what are they more or less likely to do in a given circumstance? And then, and act. And this is a very important uh, uh, part of the definition. Act mean uh, a decision, I'm sorry, disposition and decision. Decision is a very important uh, part of this definition. Decision means that we are incorporating human agency into our definition. And we are saying that human agency is always present in, in human behavior and that nothing is deterministic or nothing should be viewed as deterministic. And so it is explicitly intended to push towards holism rather than unitary theory and then fight, act, or persevere. So fighting, of course, is, the, is combat but also just simply driving a truck through an area that might be, you know, filled with mines or sitting in a trench when you might get killed, um, doing all the different acts in warfare that require you to be there. Uh, and so that's where we came up with our definition. Um, why not morale and cohesion? Well, cohesion, I think I explained, we don't want to make this a singular uh, factor. Uh, and cohesion is important, um, but it is not in, a, in itself deterministic or explanatory. So. Um, the the term morale is really interesting and a lot of experts have used morale as a stand-in for will to fight i would argue uh, there have been some great books by john bain and other bains and others um, that use the term morale uh juiced mirlu's uh, psychological study of morale um all of all of these kind of fascinating really helpful studies of what is effectively will to fight are all available and present. We've cited them in the reports and I, and I recommend them to readers. But the term itself really, in our view, is also, first of all, not defined in the US military other than morale, welfare, and recreation, which is effectively like, rec, you know, um, do the guys have enough movies to watch uh, or something like that? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, insubstantial, really. And, but what it really, comes down to is morale is something that is observable, right? It's an easy term because you can say, okay, how are these people feeling? How do they look right now? What is their mood? And that is not necessarily their disposition to fight. So you can see people that are sad, down, grubby, miserable, angry, cursing, um, and hating their leadership. But when you Put a weapon in their hands and you tell them to go fight they might actually fight quite aggressively and you can see the exact opposite happen as well people all smiling and ready to go and clean uniforms and and um, quite happy with their circumstances and you thrust them into a combat situation and they break and run and so and, and of course most things are usually not that extreme right something in between there but um so morale is more ephemeral and and kind of surface level and it doesn't get at what we think is really important, which is this disposition and decision to fight, act, or persevere. So, what are the challenges in modelling and understanding human behaviour in warfare? What sort of what sort of issues did you did you encounter through the research process and actually trying to put this stuff down on paper in a in a comprehensible form? I mean, that's ten separate podcasts, right? I mean, the first thing I mentioned all these fascinating people we had on the study, and we of course interviewed hundreds more, and and. We brought in this really brilliant guy, Stephen Silver, who's a, a, a psychologist, a military psychologist who had dealt with uh, PTSD issues and 
Um, and uh, he built a model, uh, you know, I think 25, 30 years ago that we actually worked with and, and cite in the study. But when you put, and, and, and we believe it's important to bring psychologists and historians and sociologists and anthropologists and cognitive modelers and all these people together and try to find a way to merge all of their thinking. But if you've ever studied anything in your life, you know that if you get two experts in a room within one field, they're highly likely to disagree with each other to the point that it might even come to blows, right? So if you put two psychologists in a room and you say, well, I, I assume you've all agreed that the five-factor model of human uh, personality is fully agreed upon in settled science, you, you know, you in all likelihood will get them on the opposite side of the room um, throwing things at each other. So now try to imagine putting a psychologist in a room with a uh, neurologist and an anthropologist who might sit at various poles, uh, you know, uh, uh, opposite poles, like magnets pushing uh, away from each other. Right. Um, and so that was that was that's going to be a, a permanent feature of this debate is how do we bring all of these schools of knowledge together to try to understand human behavior in this holistic and comprehensive way that's going to further our understanding of will to fight. And and that was certainly extraordinarily difficult. Um, you know, we had people uh, leave the study uh, because they they just were so upset about things. Not many, um, but we had um, uh, people that just um, uh, just disagreed with one another in perpetuity, which is fine. But what we really were able to find and bring a team together of people that were willing to compromise, and it was a it was a wonderful experience. Rand has some great talent uh, and some really wonderful uh, personalities. So that was one major problem. The other one is just getting interest. And this is the irony, perhaps, of uh, of the Ukraine and Afghanistan, right? Is we did, we built this model. Um, we uh, we tried to push this in a hard way. Like I was, uh, you know, I was aggressively selling this. My, uh, my colleague, Mike McNerney, and all of our, our partners on the team were aggressively pushing this and trying to get people to buy into it. And in this is 2016, 17, 18, uh, 19. I, I left Rand in 20 in 2020. Uh, and we got some interest in the US Army. They deserve a lot of credit for for buying into this whole idea. But um ultimately it didn't it didn't sink in, right? Nobody, nobody really cared. Um, and maybe that's salesmanship on our part, maybe it's the quality of the work. I don't, I don't, you know, I I I don't want to assign blame, but you know, we we ran into this kind of lack of interest throughout the entire process. Then Afghanistan happened. Now, I would have argued that once Iraq happened in 2014 and a force that we had spent, I don't know, a trillion dollars building collapsed overnight when a bunch of guys with pickup trucks showed up, that should have been a wake-up call that we needed to pay more attention to will to fight. It wasn't, that's fine. So Afghanistan happened, and now you see senior military leaders being called on the carpet in front of the U.S. Congress and being asked very difficult questions. How come you didn't forecast this? Why were you telling us the Afghan security forces were going to last another six months and they only lasted another six weeks? Um, why did they break? We gave them all of this stuff, and you see, you heard a lot of um, senior leaders saying things about the Afghans. Well, we gave them all this stuff, and they didn't fight. Well, of course, that's not a very fair or accurate description of what happened. But that spiked interest. And then Russia happened. And 
we all assumed that the Russians would fight aggressively and crush the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians would collapse. Well, that's not what happened either, right? And we had the director of intel uh, defense intelligence, um, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, have to publicly apologize for getting it wrong about the Ukrainian will to fight. Um, and so then we had Congress pushing really hard. Uh, you have uh, Senator Angus King uh, and others, uh, Tom Cotton, um, aggressively pushing the U.S. military and the, uh, the uh, director of national intelligence to come up with answers. Say, why didn't you understand will the fight? Why aren't you studying this? And so now it's an after the fact again, right? We're back to this cycle of failure, spike in interest. And so there's this little sliver of time here where we have a window to, to get this something concrete embedded here. And so I'm not sure if you're aware of it. The good news, at least in the U.S., that uh, a law has been proposed that would direct um, the intelligence community to uh, start making progress on this. Um, and so hopefully that will happen. So your report talks about putting the human factors such as morale, leadership, uh, will to fight, human resilience into simulations, computer games and operational planning modelling. How accurate can this modelling be when it looks at uh, human factors and what is the purpose of doing it? Yeah, I, I would <clears throat> I wouldn't look for accuracy um, and I, I would never claim that we were um, accurate. And I don't think that's the purpose of it. You know, there's. Um, there are models and simulations that whose purpose is to try to be as accurate as possible, right? And no model, a model is always just a model. Anybody that tells you that their model is is accurate without caveats um, is you can automatically dismiss them, right? Um, so once you translate a model to a computer simulation, now you're adding, you know, things like, well, the computer can only do A and B. We want it to do A, B, and C. Too bad. Cut out C. So you're now modifying the model, right? So once you put something, a model into a computer simulation, you're already removing it from reality another step, right? So I like to think about our approach to, to simulation like I would think about our approach to gaming. Gaming and simulation uh, generally have two kind of overlapping but distinct purposes. Gaming is generally designed to help people think about a problem and to think through problems. And... Only in very rare circumstances will people make claims that a tabletop game is accurate, accurately representing the real world. And when people do that, I would also be, uh, I would raise an eyebrow, right? Um, so I would rather say that we, we, and we did gaming. We did a gaming to simulation approach, model game sim approach. I would rather think about the simulation as kind of a more advanced or another way of interpreting the gaming, right? And to say... No, here's the model in another form, right? Let's think, how are, how are we going to think about human behavior constructively? How can we take this thing that is esoteric and complex and holistic and difficult to explain and transmit and put it in a format and a context that is explicable and easily digestible and even visual, right? How do we reach the broadest number of learners um, possible? And this is really about science consumption and the way that senior leaders absorb information. And we want to try to get it to them in the way that is most appropriate for them. And for some of them, it's computer simulation. And my final question is, what impacts do you hope the report or series of reports will, will actually have? I mean, I think it, it, if we can get people thinking about will the fight, that's great. I don't think we succeeded in that. I think the world uh, world events succeeded in doing that for us, right? And it just so happened that our timing was a little bit off, but our timing was good enough that the reports were present 
and available for people um, to leverage uh, now to try to fix this problem, to solve this problem. of There's no institutionalized um, understanding of will to fight. There's no institutionalized capability to analyze will to fight. And so that is a tangible problem. How do we define it, describe it, codify it, put money, assign money to it to analyze it, and then do something about it? How do we then put this into the cycle of learning and, and decision making? And I hope our model is going to be helpful for that. Um, I know that it has already been used in a modified way by one U.S. agency. Um, so that's been that's been quite heartening for us. Um, and really that it can be done, right? To take this idea that it's too hard, can't be done, which we heard a lot, and get past that and say, no, there are things in life, there are challenges in life that are incredibly complex and that may never have a solution. They're not quantifiable. They're not easily discernible, um, or 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 you, 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 they're not. Um, they don't lend themselves to traditional ways of problem solving. But they're still worth attacking. They're still worth making progress towards, even if that progress is going to be incremental over time. And so I'm hoping that even that way of thinking can be imparted to some extent through these reports. I should say that the reports are available free on the RAND website to be downloaded. Um, and I certainly have downloaded them. Ben, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was great. I enjoyed it.